Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, two quick items of business and then we'll dive in. First, a couple of episodes ago, we featured a really interesting young guy named Young Pueblo Huge Instagram following, deep meditation practice. We just did a Nightline story on him that I wanted to let you know about. Uh, There's a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. Two, uh, my friend and collaborator and guru, Jeff Warren, is holding a couple of retreats, which I highly recommend you consider attending. The first is uh, the Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics Retreat. Uh, That's in April in California. The second, uh, actually, he's doing two more retreats in May at Omega in upstate New York, uh, another Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics retreat, and then a five-day How to Guide Meditation workshop and retreat. Go to jeffwarren.org to learn more. And again, there are links in the show notes here. Go check it out. Jeff's amazing. I love that guy. Okay, so the episode this week. Uh, our guest was recommended by a former guest, Jocelyn Gly, who was on uh, – a few months ago to talk about having a, a, a more compassionate approach to productivity. And I got a ton out of that interview. And she, in the course of our discussion, dropped a reference to a book called Rest, which uh, was written by Alex Sujung Kim Pang. Alex Sujung Kim Pang. And I went and checked the book out, and it was a revelation for me. You know, this these issues around productivity – and Jocelyn has this great phrase, productivity shame, that I struggle with. Um, you know, I've done a ton of work in my life around you know, trying to be a better, happier person. And the, one of the areas that where I still feel I have some of the most growth needed is around um, not working so hard, so maniacally, so many days. And uh, meanwhile, being able to hopefully keep up with what's um, required of me and also thinking strategically about how how much I'm allowing other people to require of me. So Alex ha- has a ton of good thinking about this. I got an enormous amount out of his book, which, as I, as I said, is called Rest. The subtitle is Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. And in the book, he really talks about how in an individual life you can uh, do what he's promising, do do less work and get more done. And he's got a new book now, which I didn't know about until I, I met him, and it's just it's just about to be published. It's called Shorter, Redesign Your Workday and Reinvent Your Life. And the the first uh, the first book I read, Rest, is, is more about um, a sort of a, a micro level, what you can do in your own life. He heard as feedback in the course of, of publishing that book – that a lot of people felt like, well, I'm stuck in a system or in a, in a workplace where I can't I can't make the changes you're recommending, and so he's written this next book, shorter about uh, it's really a, a um, an ode to the four day work week and 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 aimed at people like me who are helping to run companies to think about whether it, it makes sense to cut down on the amount of work you're requesting of your employees. And that his argument is that we'll pay dividends down the line. So we talk about structural approaches to 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 pro- proliferating the four day work week. We talk about how to cultivate uh, on an individual level uh, what he calls deliberate rest, and he'll talk about what that means and why he thinks that's a a key to productivity. 
Um, he talks about structuring your workday around uh, the most creative hours of your day. And he talks about how meditation and other restorative practices can help with all of this. So here we go. Here's Alex Sujung Kim Pang. All right, great. Well, nice to meet you. I've been yeah. wanting to talk to you for a long time. Well, thanks. Really enjoyed your book, the 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 old book, Rest, mm-hmm. which I've read in its entirety and read. I had a chance to read a little bit of shorter the the new book, and we'll talk about both of them. But first, I'm just interested in you for a second. How, why is this issue of how we work and overwork and its ramifications on productivity and psychology. Why is this such a big issue for you? How'd you get into this? Mm-hmm. Well, I studied at, um, history of science when I was in school and in graduate school. And the and what I was always really interested in was how scientists work, what makes them creative, you know, how you discover new ideas. And so in a sense, this has been a kind of through line in my own kind of intellectual and academic life for a very long time. I've worked in Silicon Valley for nearly 20 years or so. And it's a place, of course, that is famous as like the world's capital of overwork, Mm -hmm. you know, and the startup culture is very intense. Um, This is a place where people make enormous fortunes very quickly, putting in Herculean hours before you know, the market changes or their technical skills become obsolete. And at a, and in an earlier incarnation, um, and this was very much kind of the way that I was working, and I was a consultant at a Think Tank doing a lot of projects, you know, juggling a lot of stuff, a lot of multitasking, always felt kind of half a step behind and eventually started to feel like I was burning out on this. And got an opportunity to go on a sabbatical to go to uh, to Cambridge to Microsoft research and spend some time there um, doing research and discovered that you know about a month into it I was getting enormous amounts of stuff done I was having great ideas I was reading all sorts of stuff but I didn't feel the kind of constant time pressure that you always feel here in the Bay Area and it started me thinking that, you know, maybe our assumptions about the relationship between overwork and success, between the number of hours we have to put in in order to do the kind of work that we really love to do, maybe those assumptions actually need to be questioned. Maybe, in fact, they're completely backwards. And that started me on a path that so far has produced um, the distraction addiction, which grew out of the work that I did at Cambridge. And then rest, which was very much a kind of contemplation of the personal stuff um, from that time. And then the new book, Shorter, which is which kind of draws together um, some out, uh, some issues from those first two and tries to push into some new territory. So that's the story. Well, that's great. I mean, it's great. And it's to all of our benefit that you've had this this kind of intellectual through line. So let's start with the new book. I just sent out a tweet a day or two before we're recording this, where I saw an article about some company, uh, maybe it was Microsoft, experimenting with shorter work weeks, and it, it really worked. And I wrote as I, I tweeted the article and wrote as my caption, "I really want to feel this is true," but somehow in my viscera, in my molecules, in the axons and dendrites of my brain, I do not feel it is true that if I work less. I'm going to get more done. Mm-hmm. 
No, I think, you know, um, the uh, first off, the study you're talking about is uh, order of Microsoft Japan did a month long trial for about almost 2,300 people in or the various Japan offices. They took every Friday off. There were five of them um, this year in August. And they found that by doing a few fairly simple things, they were able not only to maintain the same level of productivity, um, working four days as five, they actually were more productive. They also, not surprisingly, had lower energy bills because the office was closed for a day. And there were various other good things that happened, right? People had better work-life balance. They spent more time volunteering and doing other things. But, you know, I think it is, you know, when I saw that, I thought, first off, this is terrific. And second, this is exactly like every other company that I write about, right? There, And you know, I have looked at more than 100 companies ranging from Michelin-starred restaurants to you know, steelworks to startups um, creative agencies, uh, companies in the U.S., Europe, Japan, Korea, and all of them find that no matter what business they're in and no matter what size they're, uh, they're in, we're at a point now, thanks to technology, thanks to uh, things about the way we work that are just waiting to be improved, that it's now possible to do five days work in four to be as productive for companies to adjust and to be as profitable and to do all of this in a way that not only keeps employees happy, but also keeps clients satisfied. And I think this is, but, you know, the idea that this is crazy talk is also one that's, it reflects the amazing degree to which these assumptions about the necessity of overwork, almost the kind of moral value of long hours, is ground into every single one of us. And I think that, you know, for those of us, for a lot of us, you know, this is a reflection of maybe how we worked in college. It's a reflection of how we've seen all of our peers work. Um, we get messages in all from all kinds of channels about this being you know, the obvious way of working and to you know, to argue that you can actually do all this while work, you can do great work while working fewer hours almost sounds like sorcery, <laughs> but, um, you know, but it turns out it is absolutely true and it is true for a wider range of companies and industries and professions than I think we, uh, than we realize. What's the mechanism? So, um, Top line things are, first of all, there is research that shows that most companies waste two or three hours a day in meetings, bad management, multitasking, distractions from Slack channels, etc. So if you can just kind of clear that stuff up, there's a whole bunch of productivity increases that technology has made possible that are kind of crushed under the weight of bad management and bad technology use. So how do you, or how do you, how do you relieve that? Um, one thing you do is you get really disciplined about meetings. Everyone kind of defaults to meetings being an hour long, mainly because most calendaring software sets meetings for an hour, and we just accept this as part of the way that the world works. 
Um, Microsoft Japan cut meetings first to 30 minutes and then to 15 minutes and limited the number of people at them. That's a, that's a very standard kind of practice. And it, it turns out that a lot of companies find they're able to be just as communicative, inclusive, decisive, running far fewer meetings with far fewer people than um, before. That's number one. The second thing is redesigning the workday. So setting aside periods of the day, often in the morning, for people's most focused, heads-down creative work. What that means is you, know, you don't have to answer the phone. You don't have to talk to people. Those conversations where someone asks, you know, can I ask you one quick thing that turns into a 20-minute diversion? You can't do that. Or if someone asks, it had better be because something's burning down. Um, past that, it becomes a lot of little things that are kind of company-specific. And it can be you know, better project management, better technology use. And But I think all, what all of them point to is the third big thing, which is kind of reorientation in the way that people think about how you spend and measure and value time. You know, in so many companies, we uh, we assume that when we're working late, we're crushing it, right? We're de- we are getting a lot done. We're showing our devotion to our work, um, our love of our company. And what these places do is kind of turn that around and say, you know, the really professional people aren't the ones who need 12 hours to get something done. They only need six hours to get it done, right? The measure of skill, the measure of devotion is not how long you spend doing something, but whether you can learn learn from your, your experiences, you can work well enough with other people, you can master your tools so that you can get this done in less time. And that's what I see whether... You know, I'm looking at Noma in Copenhagen, or Noma, Noma, the 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 restaurant in Copenhagen. Uh-huh. You know, or a telemarketing agency in Glasgow, Scotland, or a cosmetics maker in Melbourne, Australia. They all do these kinds of things, and they all see common benefits. And the doing thing, particularly as I'm, as it pertains to creative work. Doing things more with more speed doesn't lead to shoddier work, rushing? Interestingly, no, um, because partly what happens is that, first of all, it's often the case that when you have particular things to execute, that you know focused work often beats long hours. So being able to concentrate on you know an aspect of uh, an ad campaign or a design for three or four hours, really, you know, dive into it, get into the details, get to the bottom of it is really valuable, super valuable in something like um, software development, where you've got a lot of little things, a lot of um, sort of short, you know, variables that you've got to keep track of and, you know, memory of how one piece of this code relates to this other thing over here. Keeping track of all of that is really difficult. And you need to get very, very immersed in the problem in order to work on it well. Having a few hours in order to do that is uh, generates um, much better results than kind of working on it more kind of half-mindedly for a very long period. The second thing is that uh, you know when people that people regularly talk about having more time to think about 
think deeply about problems in their extra time off. So, you know, they're not just using it to, you know, binge watch whatever latest show is going on, but they are also using some of that time to kind of turn over problems that have occupied them at work. And we all know there's a world of difference between, you know, being late at the office and trying to finish a problem and kind of thinking about it when we're out on a hike and being and having that extra time to allow your kind of creative subconscious to work on problems even while you're doing other things turns out to make for or of more creative results great uh, or deeper insights and overall um better products well so i just think I, I do a lot of creative teamwork right now i'm in the middle of editing i've got two big sort of tv or video projects and and i work with the team and we edit them uh we edit the story where we're actually working on the script and then the we have an editor who's physically editing the videotape and i just think uh these projects kind of i mean in my mind but this is you you're going to challenge this assumption i imagine kind of take the time they take and there's there are barriers uh of, around the physical time it takes to actually edit the video mm-hmm. And I can, I can imagine it being very frustrating if my boss said, "Look, your hour, your workday is five hours. You're done. You you know basically you're going to do three hours of hard work, and then the rest of the day is going to be emails and meetings, and then you're out." I can imagine that being incredibly frustrating, and that we would create some sort of rump group and meet on the outside <laughs> and get it done then. So, how do you respond to that? Um, I, it takes time to figure out how to do it. But um, to speak to the video example, um, I actually have a couple video or video production companies that have done this. They've gone more to six hour, uh, or six hour days, so they're doing thirty hour weeks rather than you know forty hours plus. And I think that the you know the short answer is that you know we all have more inefficiency in our systems or or in in how we work and work together than we often realize. Um, and that once you start thinking about and finding those things that you can make more efficient, it's really, you know, that's, uh, that begins a process where you kind of start questioning everything. Um, companies often start with reducing this, the length of meetings because most people don't like meetings and most companies don't run very good meetings. That's kind of an easy win for everyone, but it also demonstrates that by making these kinds of organizational and normative changes, you can actually let people go home at the end of the day on Thursday without, cre- you know, without making people who want to do really good work, you know, who really enjoy this stuff, feel like they're having to make a sacrifice. And so, but you know, I think it does. Everyone does say that it takes time to kind of figure out this new rhythm, um, and that it can take you know weeks or a couple months to really kind of adjust to this, but that uh, they, but that, you know, they do. But it's not, if I'm, it's possible that I'm misunderstanding this, yeah. but I was under the impression that it's not just the efficiencies that allow us to do more work in less time. It's also the psychological energetic boost we get from not having to spend so much time stuck in the office that allows us to do more in, in the reduced time. Yes. That, uh, in, one of the things that I talk about in or in my previous book, Rest, is that 
a lot of super creative people kind of layer periods of really intensive work and periods of leisure, what I call in the book, deliberate rest. And in a sense, these companies are, are sort of doing the same thing at scale, right? They're trading, they're, they're trading long hours for more intensive work periods. They're designing the day to make that possible. Um, and, and in exchange, people are able not only to work work intensively to make up for the time, but they've also got more or more time on their own um, or sometimes hanging out with friends after work, you know, when work ends at three o'clock or work ends at the, you know, at the end of day Thursday um, to kind of continue sometimes to play around with these ideas. So I think that, that work, I would say, you know, I think we all know the difference between Kind of playing around, uh, you know, between kind of playing around with ideas ourselves versus you know being in the office and doing stuff on deadline. I mean, I think it is absolutely the case that for lots of knowledge workers, that boundary does get uh, sort of uh, is sometimes difficult to establish. But I think it's also worth recognizing that that you know there is a difference between playing around with ideas versus. Um, you know, versus having to, uh, having to charge at them at the office. I think, in, you know, actually software companies are a really good example of this, right? There are a number of them that have implemented what they call free Fridays. So you do, you know, four days working on the product, doing stuff for clients, and then your fifth day, you can do your own stuff. Google did an informal version of this, you know, the famous 20% time, which people, and at Google, some really great stuff came out of it, like, Gmail and AdWords, but people always had to kind of fight for it and advocate for themselves to get it. At these companies, places like Cockroach Labs, a startup in New York City, um, it's built into the schedule. And you talk to the people there and you know the opportunity on a Friday to kind of play around with your own thing, whether it is, you know, or of prototyping something, working on a kind of side project that lets you learn a new programming language. You talk to them about that, and yes, it involves some of the same kinds of skills, sometimes even some of the same tools that they that they use when they're working, but for them, it feels very different from work. So, um, but I, th- you know, so I think this is, it, this is always, this is always kind of a challenge to work through, but I think, you know, especially for people who kind of love what they do, it's useful to kind of tease apart these different kinds of ways of relating to what we do and how and when we do it. I'm kind of thinking of this discussion in, um, you know, on a, that we're having, we're going to have it on a couple of levels. Now we're kind of on the structural level of how to, how do corporations pull this off and what are the impact What's the impact on workers? And then we're going to move in. So that's the new book, shorter. But your first book, uh, not your first book, but the book that I read first, uh, Rest, is really about you know how can we, the the steps that we can take as an individual on an individual level as opposed to structural in order to sort of balance our work time so that we're not we're more effective and less insane. Uh, but just staying on the structural level for a second, because I, I want to get to the individual eventually. Uh, what you were just describing there sounds to me different than a four-day work week or a thirty-hour work week. It's you still have to go to work on Friday, but it's a play day, kind of. Um, 
some places, uh, uh, in some places, the office is open and you can go in if you want. Um, I'm essentially kind of the resources of the company, whether they are, you know, servers or 3D printers are available to you. However, if what you want to do on your free day is, you know, sort of, uh, you know, go, go somewhere else, you know, or go to the new cool exhibit that might give you some design ideas, then that's also, per, you know, that's also something that, uh, that people do on the free Fridays. So, you know, it, depending on the kind of work you can do and kind of depending on how place dependent it is, it can happen in the office or somewhere else. Do employers in this situation, and I'm saying this now as an, an employer, do they have to police their employees? Cause I could imagine we would have employees at 10% who would, who are just super into the work they're doing and would really want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to police them in the sense of, um, convincing them actually that you're serious about moving to a four day week. Like there's, I, and I hear stories about, you know, of uh, companies where people are still showing, you know, still showing up Friday morning, the first couple of weeks. And it's, you know, it's basically habit um, or they just don't really quite know what to do with themselves. And so I think that it does require leadership to get people to, Take this seriously and to think that it's going to, you know, and to convince them that it's going to work and it's going to be okay. There are also at many of the companies that I've studied, one or two people who will quit rather than move from a five day week to a four day week. Now, they just don't like the pace or the rhythm, or there's something else that makes them decide that this isn't for them. But, but, you know, I know you said before that, that it boosts productivity uh, because people have more energy and, it's, and we're cutting back on inefficiencies. But I, I, I just wonder, I can imagine if I'm an employee in a situation like this, I would think, well, you're actually not expecting me to get less done, but you're giving me less time in which to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, that is That is correct. On the other hand, you are also kind of there is a there is a social contract that's at work here, right? It is that if you are able to, or if, uh, if you're able to realize these increased efficiencies, if you're able to redesign your day to work better with other people, you get to keep the productivity gains, right? The gains don't, I mean, in the sense that the time that you save becomes your property. Um, in many places, you know, productivity gains go entirely to capital to sound Marxist for a second, right? And so, yes, you are asking people to do more work in less time, but the flip side is that they get more time for themselves. And so, and the, you know, and they also, by the way, also get the same salary, right? The places that I'm looking at keep salaries the same and in fact, there are some that have given bonuses in the form of the overtime that they used to that they used to give people. Mm. Um, so, you know, to make sure that people don't lose money in the course of doing this. So, I think that's that. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is the case. You're asking people to work differently. It's going to be more intensive. They do have less time, but the you know, but the net benefits will be clear to people, you know, to individual, to the individuals themselves and also to companies and ultimately to clients as well. Um, 
did you see spectacular failures in your research here and what what counted for those um there were a few that decided to back off um and the some of them some of them eliminated four day weeks when there was a downturn in the business um and they felt like you know you can't do things like lay off people and still keep a four day week so that's one thing that happens in a couple other places, they couldn't quite figure out how to make kind of the social side work. So actually, one of the failures was a video production company in Hong Kong. And, you know, with people already were out doing shoots, you know, meeting clients, spending a lot of time out of the office. And once you introduced a four-day work week, everyone felt like they were able to get, get the same amount of work done, but the office was a ghost town and they didn't like that. And so they went back to a five-day week as a result. I don't know of places that have eliminated it because of managerial problems or productivity failures, but that may also be that, you know, people kind of tried it and it didn't work and they just haven't wanted to talk about it, right? You know, companies, companies like people are much more willing to talk about their successes than about their failures. So, you know, this is a, this is a sampling problem. And if there are any companies that have, you know, that have gone through that, I would love to hear about them. Not me, by the way, I'm, I have made a whole uh, career out of talking out of my, about my failures. Um, <laughs> let's go back to Marx for a second, because in reading your book, it's clear that you're kind of embedding this idea around shorter work weeks, shorter work days in a critique of modern capitalism uh, that it's capitalism is not working for many of us. And uh, we have inequalities, we have overwork, we have uh, particular, uh, you, you, you point this out. Um, you go at, you you take you're at pains to point out in particular, how mothers suffer in this, in this current environment. So can you just hold forth on how this is in some ways an antidote to much of you know, we're in, we're in an era now where we've got a lot, especially a lot of young people, you know, leveling socialist critiques against modern capitalism. So I'd love to hear you paint that picture. Sure. Well, I think that, um, you know, the, there are people who advocate for a four-day week uh, sort of coming from an avowedly sort of left-wing kind of point of view, right? That this is bound up in um, or of trade union advocacy. And of course, unions have been essential for getting us things like the 40 hour work week and the, you know, on the modern weekend. One of the things that has, that struck me when I was working on the book was how little politics mattered for the people I was talking to, Mm. right? For them, it was about making the business better. It was in a sense, a kind of Elizabeth Warren style wanting to fix capitalism, Rather than a kind of democratic socialist wanting to um, uproot it, into, uh, you know, or uproot it substantially, kind of or of uh, kind of thing. But I think where all of them, where all of them converge, all of these critiques converge, is in a sense that um, the way in which we have organized work and workplaces, um, the ways in which we have tried to develop policies to deal with things like the balancing of parenthood and careers, mainly for women, but now increasingly for men as well, that these things, however well-intentioned, have not actually worked to everyone or to, or uh, as well as they should have 
to uh, for as many people as they should and that the approach that so many of us have been taught which is that challenges with things like overwork or work life balance are things that we have to solve ourselves through better you know management of our own schedules or tips and tricks is you know i think that that's good in the sense that it help it's always good to be aware of how you spend your time to be mindful of or of you know how you make use of this you know your your time on earth and how you can you know how you can do it better but i think that also serves to divert our attention away from the bigger structural structural problems that are at sort of the root of all of these problems that we all have and that I think the, one of the great innovations of these companies is recognizing that these are problems that we can solve much more powerfully if we solve them together and if we solve them structurally rather than individually. You know, do you want to call that capitalist or do you want to call it socialist? I mean, I think in a way, you know, the, I, the, the, ar- the arguments that I've had with, you know, with people who run companies about, you know, about uh, sort of about this is that, you know, there's a, there's a kind of startup spirit that, that comes from working long hours that, you know, that, that you lose. And I think that, you know, the argument, I think the answer is maybe, maybe not. Um, and that this is clearly a way of working that better suits people who have young families it's often super attractive to people who have come from, you know, the Googles or Cantars and McKinsey's who've done a few years of 80 hours and, you know, they know how to do that, but they can see that, you know, at some point in their careers, they're not going to be able to sustain that and figuring out the challenge of doing this kind of work at this level in four days rather than five is sort of like flipping a bit, right? You're applying the same kind of devotion and dedication, but you're trying to figure out how to apply that to to do great work in fewer hours rather than in more hours. And ultimately, you know, this provides benefits in recruitment and retention, in employee satisfaction and work-life balance. It helps companies be more productive and creative. And I wonder, you know, which of these things do managers object to, right? Um, which one don't they want their companies and their people to have? And, you know, if the, so, and maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll find out specifically, you know, sort of um, which one people don't like. But I think that, you know, this is, you know, whether you are, whether you're in the, the business of, of reforming capitalism or changing it profoundly, you know, I think that, that, you know, I would love to get to the point where, you know, we argue about um, the philosophical reasons for having a four-day week rather than, you know, should we even try? Um, what, do these, what do these companies do about email and Slack and off-hours communication? Because that seems like a backdoor way to really level everybody back up to 70, 80-hour work. Week. Oh, yeah. No, you know, um, one of the great ironies of, moder- you know, of, of 
being able to carry our offices around in our pockets is that we had this vision of flexible work where you would work for a few hours and you'd go deal with kids and that, you know, you'd be offline and then you would come back to work later and you'd work some more, you know, breaking it up into these big discrete chunks, making it more manageable. Instead, what's happened is that they have kind of turned work into a fine powder that kind of spreads through our whole day, right? You know, an amazing number of us check our email within 30 seconds of waking up. Um, you know, many of us have had the experience of being at dinner when people are, you know, texting under the table or no longer under the table. And so what these companies do is um, they get, they, they get rid of a lot of that behavior. There are in some of them explicit rules about no email after hours, you know, unless, unless something is burning down. Um, they, you know, with Slack and async and sort of systems like that, it varies depending upon the number of remote workers you have and whether this has been a problem before. Generally, if you've got a more remote distributed workforce, you tend to kind of live on Slack and systems like that. So you you figure out how to manage better within it. If, on the other hand, everyone is in the office together, there's a tendency to turn it off or turn down the number of channels and to encourage people to just talk more face to face. Right. Um, so I think that there, that um, the bottom line is nobody gets rid of the technology, but they do a lot of thinking about how you really need or how you can use it in the most effective manner rather than let's say just the speediest manner. Uh, that seems key. Last question for me on the structural, although if I've missed something, we can go into it. I was just struck in reading the book how co- how confident you seem, not overconfident, but you, you really ha- – it, it, it shines through that you're painting a picture that th- this is a, tre- a trend where we, we, we're heading toward a world where it's possible that this becomes the new way we work. I'd love to hear more about your confidence there. Sure. So um, I would say that, first off, I've worked as a futurist for close to 20 years or so. And you see a lot of stuff that it, about how the world is falling apart, right? You know, climate change, the rise of authoritarianism, um, or the manipulation of social media or for various nefarious ends. AI. AI. Yeah. Or if robots are going to take our jobs. And – I think that part of what I'm responding to is that this is this is a this is what in the field we call a weak signal, right? It's a small thing that's popping up in all kinds of very different places independently that ha- that however is responding to a set of root causes that's often using technologies in the same way, solving problems in similar ways in very different kinds of markets and environments. And it looks to me like the beginnings of a global movement that just really isn't yet aware of itself. Mm. And I think that the, you know, the, other, the other thing that makes me sort of optimistic or enthusiastic about it is that it is a really simple way to solve a whole bunch of problems that we face in the workplace today and are going to face in the future. That the idea of, you know, 
companies today are dealing with issues around gender inclusivity with, you know, sort of bringing um, more women or working parents into managerial positions or senior positions. They're dealing with, you know, if they don't already, they're already starting to worry about automation and AI and how to bring technologies into sort of uh, into their workplaces. You know, millennials want better work-life balance and a four-day work week turns out to offer a toolkit for solving all of these problems in, I think, a beautifully holistic way. And, you know, I think we've seen that individual efforts to attack particular problems with, you know, flexible work programs, for example, you know, are useful to a degree, but they also have pretty hard limits. And the four-day week is something that is really simple to describe. It is simple and easy to envision and to imagine. But it's also something that offers an enormous amount of flexibility at the local level, right? Every company works it out a little bit differently. Every company solves these problems of how do you improve collaboration, How do you get better leadership? How do you communicate with clients for themselves? But they all do manage to do so and to enjoy a common set of benefits as a result. So, and I think the final reason is that the people who I talk to in the book, the people whose stories I tell, the company founders, the managers, the workers, they themselves are really enthusiastic about it. You know, they admit that there's a lot of work that goes into it. It continues to be a lot of work. Um, it requires thinking differently about your workplace. It requires, you know, it's almost becomes a reflex to question what it is that you do and how you do it. But um, it's, it's not more work than, you know, working 10 or 12 hours a day. And it, brings benefits that you know are or you know uh, that are continuous and that are shared by everyone okay so let me ask a question that i think will a personal question which will bridge us out of structural and more into um the individual level i just as i you know i began with this skepticism i'm just thinking about my all of these ideas sound very intriguing on many levels theoretical practical and yet i cannot think about i cannot imagine how i would operationalize this in my own life not as now i'm not talking about here as an employer i'm talking about as a person who has a lot of work to do mm-hmm. and many jobs many hats many projects yeah i just and i work 7 days a week i don't work uh, it's rare for me to work a lot of 12 hour days but long days or not out of the question. Some of them are shorter than others, but I, you know, I, I'm writing a book on top of everything else I do, and it just won't get done if I don't yep. shove it into the nooks and crannies of every other day. Well, there's your problem. I mean, writing a book, but yes, it, the it, worst thing in the world. Exactly. So, you know, I think that the, you know, that um, these companies are ones that are, yeah, they're doing one thing, right? You know, they're making dinner. I mean, it's a world class dinner. Or you're talking uh, about the chefs yeah the, yeah about the, the chefs and yeah. you know the restaurants or you know they're they're you know they're making other products um, they tend not to be doing a whole bunch of different and somewhat kind of conflicting things simultaneously but I think that you know even for those of us who are 
you know, essentially kind of multi-hat entrepreneurs that you can look at these companies sort of like elite athletes, right? Or like world-class chess players. You know, I will never be as good a chess player as Magnus Carlsen, right? But um, there are still things that you can learn about the game and how to approach the game from studying what he does or, you know, Usain Bolt or, you know, Serena, you know, or Serena Williams, um, and even if you can't get to that level, there are things that you can learn from them about how to up your game, about how to make your game more sustainable so that, you know, you're not, you know, even if you are, you know, even if you can't get from working seven days to working four, you might be able to get to working six and doing or doing seven in a way that isn't going to burn you out. And that leaves you, you know, uh, that allows you to acknowledge the necessity of taking some time off, of you know, recharging your batteries, and of being able to continue to work so that you don't just finish the next book or the next startup, but you've got enough of your own life left so that you can continue doing what you love for a long time rather than having to do it really intensively for a short time. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that, and I, I in part because of having read uh, the book we're going to turn to next, your previous book, Rest, I have been playing with how to, um, even if I do have to work six, seven days a week, how to make the days more restful. But let me just ask you: you are you you're, you write books and have a company, and um, I don't know what else is on your plate. Are you working four days now? Um, I am close. So I mean, yeah, um, I tend to work intensively for you know, I, uh, sort of for more of the week. So I'm more like four to six really solid hours, five or six days. Um, and, you know, at some point I might be able, uh, you know, I might be able to get down to four, but at this stage I'm probably doing, you know, I am probably doing like 30 hour weeks or so if I'm sort of really, sort of really honest with myself. So, however, you know, that's basically, you know, me looking at a keyboard doing stuff, right? So I'm not having to manage people or work with, uh, or, you know, or work with teams most of the time. So, you know, I have, and also my kids are older, so, you know, I have flexibilities in my schedule that, um, I didn't have when they were younger and I had to really be more disciplined about, you know, picking them up from school and that sort of thing. So, but, you know, I tend to do, I tend to do shorter hours per day, more intensive leisure, but spread out, you know, spread out, not over four days, but four plus. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger. Never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online 
Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Let's turn now to the question that is implied by everything you're talking about. Once you cut back to four hours, mm-hmm. in theory, once you cut back yeah. at all, the question is, what are you filling the rest of your time with? And right. you have a the book Rest, which was galvanizing for me and recommended by a previous guest on this show, Jocelyn K. Gly, a host of an excellent podcast called Hurry Slowly. You have a whole book about um, how – how we can fill that time and how important it is that rest and work, as you say, are not opposites. They're, they're complements. Mm-hmm. So hold forth, if you will. Sure. So this was kind of the big discovery that I had when I was, when I was on my own sabbatical right in Cambridge. And, and the, this, you know, we, we think of, and in most of our daily lives, work and rest are kind of competitors and rest is the thing that you get after you're done with, you know, after you're done with everything. But in today's world, you know, most of us don't stop work when the sun goes down or when the factory bell rings. So, you know, there is, and you know, for most of us, there is no being done with everything. Um, and it makes it, it makes it really easy for us to default to a condition where we never really carve out time or for rest for ourselves. But what I saw when, you know, after after Cambridge, as I said, I was an historian of science, and I've got a you know a whole bunch of biographies of scientists, and I started going back and trying to reconstruct the daily schedules of people like Darwin and Einstein and various you know, Nobel Prize winners and composers and things. And what I found was that they tended to work shockingly few hours a day compared to you know modern humans, us. And they did a couple really interesting things. And one was that um, Darwin, to take one example, um, worked really hard in the morning for about four hours doing experiments, writing, uh, sort of, et cetera. And then he would quit and go for a long walk. And he actually had a path on his property that he called his thinking path. And he would spend a couple hours out there getting some exercise and then go back, do a little bit more stuff, and then he'd be done for the day. So Working probably about five hours a day, Darwin was able to write The Origin of Species, The Descent of Man. You know, this is a guy who who changed the way we think about nature and gave us a toolkit for thinking about evolution that is, you know, still in use. And you see this similar kind of pattern with lots of other people where they work fewer hours than we would expect 
And they have schedules that layer periods of, of focused work with this intensive or deliberate rest. And what I mean by deliberate rest is it's a kind of rest that, first of all, in the day comes almost immediately after this hard work period, um, which gets them generally outside doing something that is not necessarily very intellectually intensive or, and that's important because what's happening is that it, that that period gives your kind of creative subconscious time to keep working on the problems that you were just focusing really hard on. And, you know that experience where you're trying to remember you know, the name of that actor who was in that movie you saw last week, who was in that thing before, you know, in that TV show, and you can't remember it. And then a couple of minutes later, you're doing something else, and the name pops into your head, right? Oh, that was Hugh Jackman. That is your creative subconscious continuing to work on problems that you haven't been able to solve, even while your attention goes on to something else. And what the, what the people I talk about in rest are doing is a kind of big scale version of that. They're organizing their days to give themselves both time to work intensively on problems, but also time to recover from that and time for their creative minds to continue turning over these ideas and often coming up with insights or solutions that they weren't able to come up with or through conscious effort. Um, I think it was Ernst Mach, the 19th century German physicist, who said that to his chagrin, um, his subconscious was uh, turned out to be the better mathematician than he was because it could solve problems that he himself could not. And he always felt a little guilty about this, but he also – you know, at a certain point started organizing his days or to, you know, to give, to give that subconscious time to do math. And, you know, one of the things, and in the last 20 or so years, there have been some advances in brain science and the psychology of creativity that show that this isn't just some sort of, you know, kind of semi-mystical mumbo jumbo, right? That there actually are things going on in the brain that we can start to talk about that explain what it is that's going on and why, you know, why this why this works and how we can figure out how to harness it in our daily lives. So uh, I would love to know more about how we can harness it in our daily lives. The, the, so the, the kinds of rest you're talking about here are it's active, deliberate rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hiking, playing sports. I don't know what else would woodworking. I don't know what else would fit in this category. I was a little disappointed because I thought it was going to be Netflix and napping. <laughs> well, you know, napping definitely. Netflix, I think, in moderation. Um, unfortunately, the the science suggests that, um, you know, the kind of rest that involves like a remote in one hand and salty snacks in the other is not as creatively recharging or, or of insight generating as active rest. And in fact, you know, we often think of rest as totally passive. And it certainly can be. Lying on the beach can be a great thing. But it also turns out that active rest, you know, going to the gym at the, or, of, you know, after a long day at the office can also be restorative, as many of us know, and as probably, too, you know, many of us aspire to put into practice but aren't, aren't completely, completely successful at. But, you know, I think that recognizing that 
the most restorative, useful kinds of rest for ourselves and, you know, for our professional lives or whatever are active is a good thing. It's also recognizing that rest is a skill, right? Rest is something that you can actually learn to do better. It's a bit like breathing, right? Breathing is a completely natural thing. But if you are an opera singer or you are a marathon runner or a swimmer, you learn how to use your breathing to help you reach the back of the auditorium or to conserve your energy or to, you know, or of, to give you that last burst of speed in the last half of the, you know, last half of the lap or the last half mile. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that I see with the people who I study is that, you know, all of them kind of learn how to use rest. None of them, none of them start off early in their lives kind of just doing it naturally. Almost all of them have the kind of experience that I had or that so many of us do, right? You, you know, sort of, you have some kind of crisis, you get sick, you burn out. You've got something that sort of signals to you that you've got to make some changes. We all learn about the value of rest the hard way. Even the smartest people are dumb about this. And I think that, you know, the, I don't know why that is, but I think the good news is that if it's true that Thomas Mann and, you know, Charles Darwin and Tchaikovsky had to learn it this way, if you and I have to learn it that way too, it's probably okay. Okay. But, but so how do we learn this? What, what are the steps required for developing this skill? Right. So I think first off that, um, that, um, the critical at attitudinal thing is to take rest seriously, right? You don't think of rest as something that you do once you've done everything else. It's something that you actually have to actively pursue, right? You have to you have to think about how you build it into your schedule, how you make time for it rather than kind of sacrificing it or deferring it. The second thing is that um, different kinds of people and jobs allow for different kinds of rest. So, Basically, the more control you have over your daily schedule, the more you can pick up some of the things that, you know, or that Darwin or Tchaikovsky did, right? Working in um, – so among those, I think that um, working in regular breaks in these intensive periods. So at the very least, what we find is that most people are able to sustain attention on a serious level for – about 90 minutes to two hours. And so, you know, and so the more you can design your day so that you have clear blocks where you can really focus, but you've also got, you've also got time for breaks. That's a good thing. Um, Also, the more in the modern world, you can do things, you can push meetings and other kinds of interruptions to later in the day for most of us, the better off you are. Most of us have essentially more energy and more attention earlier in the day. And so the more you're able to do focused work then and reserve the more kind of social stuff or um, less less critical or cognitively demanding things for later in the day, the better off you are. I think the other thing is that um, there is, recognizing that there is also value in the kinds of sort of rest during the day that uh, we tend to do too little of or that our employers think of as time theft, I think is the term that one big company uses. So naps, for example, used to be amazingly common in 
the modern office. And you see a few places that, you know, like, um, you know, Silicon Valley companies like Google have gone back to having things like nap pods or nap rooms where people can you know, take 20 minutes in the afternoon rather than, you know, another espresso. If that's something that your company allows, that can be a really, you know, that those that kind of practice is a pretty restorative thing. If, on the other hand, you're in a job where you don't have a lot of control over your daily schedule, um, then what's important is to be as disciplined as you can about disconnecting in the time you have, um, which means, you know, or uh, disconnecting on nights and on weekends as much as possible. People who have longer, happier careers tend to have better, higher boundaries between work life and personal life, which is something that a lot of us have become bad at, but which turns out to be a really valuable thing. The other important thing is take vacations seriously. Americans are terrible at this, partly because you know, we don't have as much vacation time as, as the rest of the world. And you think that going on vacation is like a sign that you're not that serious. But there have been, you know, there are longitudinal studies that have shown that people who take vacations live longer, they are happier, they're less prone to chronic diseases and dementias than people who don't. Um, ideally, we would all be able to take a week off every three months or so. But in reality, the only bad vacation is the vacation you don't take. So that's my advice. Okay, so there are a bunch of threads that I think are worth pursuing there. Um, let me start with what it is we do for rest. Mm-hmm. This is actually an existential question because yeah. if you're cutting back to four hours, four days of work a week, mm-hmm. you're looking down the barrel of a of a lot of time, and 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 I think for a lot of us that's a that that can freak us out. So how do we how do we go about figuring out what it is? that our deliberate restorative rest is going to consist of? That is, you know, that is a terrific question. And it's one that a lot of people actually do grapple with. So I think that kind of at the daily level, um, the things that are sort of, you know, easy and restorative are stuff like walking. And it's everyone pretty, you know, most people know how to walk. And I think that, you know, if you can incorporate it into things like walking meetings, that tends to make meetings more effective and shorter. And if you're disabled, you you know, it could be if you're in a wheelchair, for example, it could be just going out in your chair. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that the the thing when it comes to like more engaging kinds of leisure activities or hobby stuff, one of the things that I think is most interesting is that people who – have both really amazingly productive careers um, and serious hobbies, choose hobbies that offer some of the same psychological rewards as their work, but in a very different kind of context and kind of time frame. So my favorite example is rock climbing, right? There are lots of scientists and actually lots of executives and professionals who are pretty serious rock climbers. And scientists talk about it as Rock, you know, they like rock climbing because it's like science, right? You've got, you know, it's another way of interacting with nature. You've got a big problem that you've got to break down into a lot of little pieces. It requires concentration and focus. These are all things that you really like about science. But at the end of the day, 
or the afternoon, you've either made it to the top or you haven't. And just so often in science, you can spend a year working on a problem and doing an experiment and the results will come back. Well, maybe. So it offers some of the same kinds of challenges that they, that they like best in science without the ambiguity. And it does so very quickly. It's also, of course, a very physical kind of thing. So I think that that combination of um, being physical, if you're in a sedentary job, or actually being more set, being more cognitively engaging if you're in a more active sort of sort of job, of speaking to some of the things that you like best about your work without the frustrations is the thing that everybody who develops a really serious hobby that lasts for you know that engages them for a very long time um, shares. The other thing is it's got to be that interesting to get you out of the office. Right. Right. So a lot of people listening to this show, I suspect, will be wondering, does meditation count? Mm -hmm. The answer is, yes, it does. I mean, I think that um, certainly as an important form of rest and restoration or of meditation, meditation does count. I would say that, you know, that often people are choosing, you know, kind of daily breaks that offer an opportunity more for mind wandering than for you know, kind of clearing and focusing the mind. But I think that, you know, for some of that, the, the kind of psychological benefits, the kind of restorative benefits are common across both of them. So. So, I mean, I'm just trying to think of my, my own rest. I would say it's meditation, exercise, hanging out with my kid, although it's, I don't experience it as super restful. <laughs> uh, and hanging out with friends, mm -hmm. socializing. I get a lot out of that. That's and I've good. really tried to prioritize that. Mm -hmm. And chilling and watching Netflix with my wife. Mm -hmm. There you go. No, and especially if you're doing it with your wife. that's um, who We work out together. Actually. Okay. That's another thing we do a lot together. That's, you know, um, I think that the, you know, uh, social, you know, socializing turns out to be an unbelievably healthy thing. Know, both sort of mentally and mentally and otherwise, and we've de deprioritized it to our detriment mm -hmm. because we're wired deeply for social connection. Yes, and it, you take it away, we go crazy. Absolutely, we get yeah, or worse. Yeah, no, you know, um, it is. Uh, uh, you know, again, these longitudinal studies looking at like, you know, healthy people over the course of sixty years, and one of the one of the most important things for. You staying healthy turns out to be other people. And in fact, to loop back to the, the four-day week book, you know, one of the other interesting things that these companies will do is you see a big boost in things like communal activities. So to kind of counterbalance the focused work time, people will do things like everyone eats lunch together. Mm. And I had – there was uh, one, one company in Glasgow after it went to a four-day week um, for the first few weeks – some of the guys were coming in on Friday, doing 10 minutes of work in the office and then disappearing. And it turned out they hadn't told their wives that they were working a four-day week. So they were coming in and then spending the whole rest of the day at the pub. <laughs> the important part of that, though, is you know, the workplace is where we socialize, right? It's where we see other people. And a lot of our, you know, a lot of our, uh, our friendships are with colleagues. And so... I think that that you know, the Glasgow story 
illustrates how important those are and how important it is for any company that moves to a shorter schedule to pay attention to those and to you know, create opportunities you know, to make sure that those social bonds don't get dissolved in the course of everybody getting better at their own, you know, everybody getting better at their jobs and the company getting better at its job. What's your rest? What have you cultivated as hobbies in order to make to enrich your life and your work? Right. Um, well, I have two dogs, so my daily schedule is a lot of walking with them. Because um, because I live in the Bay Area, I have you know some of the best hiking trails and biking trails anywhere, and so I do a fair amount of that. And then, yes, you know, I do, I get, I get value out of my Netflix subscription as well. <laughs> so, but, you know, I think, but um, the fact that you can, you know, be outdoors pretty much year round here in the Bay Area is one of the things that I treasure most about it. So, but, you know, I walk, but thanks, mainly thanks to the dogs. I do walk, you know, three or four miles a day. Um, and the morning walk is actually one where I will take them out after having been writing for a couple hours. So it's a break from that, but I've also still got a lot of problems, you know, a lot of unsolved, just technical issues running around in my head. And so while I'm out with them, I often have really good ideas that I'll then go back. You bring a notepad? I yeah, I absolutely do. I bring a notepad. I write it down instantly because otherwise I will forget it. No matter how good an idea I have in the moment, my brain doesn't want to hold on to it. And I used to think, oh, I'll remember that. That's such, you know, that's such a great solution. And I don't. <laughs> um, and a notepad is a much more, re- you know, is much more reliable than my own mind. So, Yeah. You know, the dogs have learned, I got to stop and write this down. They get a treat. We keep going. (laughs) Um, I write it out. And then, you know, by lunchtime, generally I'm done. And, you know, the the first book I wrote took me about 10 years or so. And working this way, right, these intensive bursts, the breaks for walking the dogs, taking naps in the afternoon, doing all the things I talk about in rest, I've been able to write three books in the last, what, eight or so. So I think it's, you know, it, it, I am, I am not a bad example of how putting all this into practice can help you be both happier, but also more productive. I think do better work. So I'm experimenting with this. I haven't, I can't say yet that it's really made a huge difference, but, um, I'm just at the beginning. So I've been thinking, so I'm writing a book and I have some control over my schedule and, um, so there are – like, for example, I'm in the middle of a month right now where I won't be able to work on the book at all because I truly just don't have control of my schedule this month. But uh, many days I uh, have some control over my schedule and what I've been trying to do – I used to work out in the morning mm-hmm. until I read your book mm-hmm. and uh, – rest, that is. And now I've been experimenting with when I wake up in the morning, I basically – there's some time where the kid, my kid, my wife and kid are around and I'm – uh, if he wants to pay attention to me, I pay attention to him. If he doesn't, I kind of like sit on the floor near him and work, uh-huh. just look, looking through my notes, getting ready, planning out the day. And I just – I've been using your argument for increased mental acuity early in the day to get me into working for a few hours first thing in the morning on writing. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I'll burn out mm-hmm. and I will either meditate or exercise then. Right. And uh, then I'll go back and work a little bit and then in the afternoon – 
I will do all the stuff that other people want me to do, calls, meetings, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Does that sound right to you in terms of a routine? It certainly sounds um, It sounds right in the sense that it's pretty similar to what I do. Um, yeah, you know, sort of the – or of move the big cognitive stuff to the or of to the first part of the day um working out as a kind of break from that and then sort of the or of the the less intensive stuff later on that's what a lot of people do i will say you know it is incredible it is far more worthwhile for everyone to figure out what what schedule works for them than to try other people's schedules and to try and yes, adapt to those right. right i mean i think it absolutely is the case that there are certain things that really seem pretty common right the number of hours we can focus focus intensively the amount of time that you can spend before you need a break that that seems to be fairly common for most of us but how you put those parts together in your day is something you want to figure out for yourself because not only do you end up with a better routine, but I think you also have the tools to figure out how to adjust it as you get older, as your work changes, as some stuff that early in your career was super challenging becomes easier later on. Now, the balance of what's hard and what's easy really ought to change over the course of your life. And so, you know, rather than looking for another person's routine to follow, as you, you know, sort of as those changes take place, being able to rely upon yourself to be able to reflect, to see what works for you, to try new things for yourself, that I think is you know, the more valuable thing. So, you know, um, work it out for yourself. Yes. Well, I mean, I've really, yeah. uh, the more I've read about habit formation, mm-hmm. um, experimentation is really the key because we are, we are different. Yes. Special snowflakes. Um, let me go to something um, – sorry, let me stay with routine for a second. One of the things I believe I read in your book that that struck me is it's like this – the routine for creative people is like creating the conditions where the muse is likely to visit. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a quote from maybe Picasso, which is the muse will visit, but – she has to find you working. Yes. So there were there were a bunch of people who've said things along these lines, and the and the idea is that I mean, Chuck Close has this one. You know, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up. And the basic insight there is that we, you know, the romantic idea of creativity is the muse strikes and you get this inspiration and then you rush to the canvas or the whatever. And, you know, you work yourself to exhaustion, realizing this vision. The reality though, is that for most creative people, you start work and then the muse shows up, Mm -hmm. you know, the inspiration come, the inspiration doesn't drive, doesn't drive the labor. The inspiration arises in the course of laboring is absolutely how it happens yes and that is and you know that's how it happens for you know everyone from you know stephen king to scott adams to you know hemingway talked about doing this and that you know first of all in creative work there's plenty of just like you know technical stuff that you can work on productively um you know tchaikovsky talked about how you could hear in even a great symphony that there were parts that you know, had come from genuine inspiration and other parts where the composer had really had to work through and make something happen. But, you know, I think that 
Certainly for me, recognizing that a regular routine provides a kind of foundation for creativity as opposed to being an impediment to it was like one of the most important things I've ever discovered in my entire life. Because, you know, when I was in college and grad school, I was very much about, you know, waiting for the muse to hit. And usually the muse would hit like at 1 a.m. the night before something was due. And when you're, you know, 19 or 20, your body can handle that sort of thing. Um, When you're older, on the other hand, you really ought to be smarter about how you work. And discovering that, you know, what Chuck Close and Stephen King were saying was absolutely true was, for me, life-changing. And I think it's, you know, it is a basic insight that you see creative people using. And I think it is, you know, it kind of runs under the surface of what a lot of these companies are doing too. Let me tee up a critique I know you've gotten many times, which is a lot of these people we're talking about who have integrated rest into their days in order to become more productive and more creative are wealthy, mostly white men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, that's absolutely the case. I think that, you know, and I think my answer is that um, the fact that it's no surprise that privileged people are able to do this first because they have more control over their time. But again, I think that they, you know, that the fact that they're able to experiment with their schedules um, and that there is, I think some pretty good science that helps us understand why these schedules work should not should not disallow this way of working for the rest of us. You know, there's a wonderful um, um, there's a wonderful organization called the NAP Ministry, which is run by a woman who, and she's she's actually a minister, but she organizes these events where she talks about rest as resistance and rest as reparations. And, you know, and she's a, uh, she's a, she's an African-American pastor and, you know, for her rest is a way of reclaiming something that she feels has, you know, sort of was not available uh, to many of her ancestors that, you know, that had been, that had been expropriated or stolen. And I think that, you know, she offers and the rest ministry offers a great way of thinking about rest, not just as the exclusive domain of the privileged and therefore as something that is inherently tainted, but rather as something that should be a human right, something that belongs to all of us and something whose loss is to be lamented rather than, t- or, you know, or whose, you know, whose, whose preservation by the wealthy should be taken not as a sign that it's something that that the rest of us should not respect, but rather we should see it we should see its reclamation as something that helps make us all more human. Two, two things. One is this critique. You know, you write this in your new book. This critique that you heard after having written rest is what provoked you to write shorter. Yeah. Because you were doing all these, you know, I'm taking, I'm paraphrasing your own words here, you were doing all these radio interviews and interviews for the, to promote the book, and people kept saying to you, yeah, this sounds great, but 
uh, I can't do this because my boss is a maniac or whatever. <laughs> I work for an employer. The, the system in which I find myself is not congenial to, to what you're suggesting. So hence the new book, which really gets at the structural fixes here. But just going back to this uh, Ministry of Rest uh, idea, it, it you know, there are overtones of this in your book, Rest, that um, – Rest is not something anybody's going to hand to you. Mm -hmm. You need to take it. Yes. And you need to prioritize it. Nobody's going to do this for you. That seems like a really important point to make. Yeah. No, I think that, um, you know, we need to reclaim it both from our own daily schedules and sort of our, you know, our own kind of deprioritization of rest as something that we need to actively make time for rather than enjoy once everything else is done. But I think, you know, we also live in a world that is that has fantastically well-developed machines for uh, capturing and commodifying and reselling our attention. Now, if in today's world we don't know what to do with our time, there is an algorithm that will ans- that will provide an answer for us. And so I think especially today that layered on top of that basic existential question that we talked about earlier about, you know, what do you do with your extra time? You know, how do you, how do you find a satisfying way of using it? There is the additional challenge of, you know, of, uh, of a greater number of structures than ever that are aimed at that time, right? A couple of years ago, Reed Hastings on an earnings call, Reed Hastings is CEO of Netflix was asked, what is Netflix's biggest competitor? And he didn't say Amazon Prime or some other service. He said, our biggest competitor is sleep. <laughs> I- <laughs> our, our audio engineer, Jake, is in the room. Hi, Jake. Uh, and he just heard that and bust out laughing. You know, Let's keep that in, Jake. Let's not edit that out. <laughs> I would love to think that Reed Hastings was joking but I'm not sure. (laughs) We can ask him. Um, All right. So last question for me, and then I'll give you a chance to make any points that I did not give you an opportunity to make. Uh, Just to end on a sort of rousing, go out there, take back your rest note. I want to point out a quote that you use in your book uh, from Thomas Jefferson. Here's the quote. It is neither wealth nor splendor, but tranquility and occupation, which give happiness. Mm -hmm. Now, I I, I really like that quote. And I think that, it, you know, it reflects a sensibility. What is the line? Tranquility and occupation. Tranquility and occupation. Right. Which, rest and work. Rest and work. You know, and I think that it, all too often we think that we have to sacrifice one of these for the other. You know, that, you know, either you are successful or you've got good work-life balance. And one of the biggest things that I've learned writing these last two books is that that can be a false choice. You know, in the new book, one of the reasons that I chose places like elite restaurants or software startups is I didn't actually want to write about like, you know, guys selling beads out of their van down at the beach. Um, You know, there's sort of like people who were, you know, people who were like entrepreneurs in search of a particular kind of lifestyle. You know, I'm always fascinated by people who are driven to do amazing things, right? To do world, you know, world changing stuff Mm -hmm. and people who are working in really, really intensive 
professions and occupations where overwork is the absolute norm, right? There's a, and one of the, you know, the founders of restaurants like, you know, Noma or Maison or Baumet in Palo Alto, which has as many Michelin stars as it has employees too. Um, yeah. Is, you know, these guys, these guys start work at 15 or 16 washing dishes. You know, they are doing 70 hour, 80 hour weeks through their twenties. And uh, these are people who work intensively hard mastering you know, mastering a craft that at its best, they absolutely love in environments that can be magical. The problem is on the downside, they can also be really awful and all consuming. And I think one of the, you know, one of the things that inspires me most about these, about these people is that, you know, they never give up this desire to push the limits of what's possible in their craft or, to discover new things about their own work, new ways of working. But the fact that they're doing this in the context of uh, building companies that work four days a week, that show their employees that it's not necessary to burn your, to risk burning yourself out in order to become a great chef or a great developer, that it's possible to think about the relationship between work and rest between your productivity and your career, between your work life and your family life in ways that are profoundly different from the kind of defaults with which we have grown up and with, and which we take to work that we can change all of that and still do amazing, amazing work is something that I think is really inspiring to me and which I think will be inspiring to a lot of people. You know, at the at the end of Shorter, there's um, or of one of the people I I write about talks about how they work a four day week at her company because after a three day weekend, anything is possible. And I love that line. And I think that for you know whether you know whether you're in a tiny company or as Microsoft Japan just showed. If you're in a company with more than 2,000 people, you know, if you are in Scandinavia or if you're in a nation that has had to invent its own word for working yourself to death, you should work a four-day week because that makes anything possible. Which nation and what's the word? Um, act, there are two of them. Um, in uh, Japan and Korea. So in Korea, it's Guarosa. And um, in Japan, Karoshi. I was blanking on it, but I finally pulled it out. Good. Karushi. Good for you. Final two questions that I ask everybody, if there, or almost everybody, is there something I should have asked but didn't? I think we covered everything, and I tend to talk long anyway. So no, It's a podcast that you're invited to Yeah, do, exactly. So, yeah, so, so yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a plus in this context. Uh, final question is uh, what I semi-facetiously refer to as the plug zone. Can you just plug all of your books, where we can find you on social media, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. Um, the books to, uh, worth mentioning, obviously, are um, shorter, work better, smarter, and less, Here's How, which is coming out in March with Public Affairs, um, available in or to find book emporia online and in the real world. Uh, the previous book, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, is available with a new forward by none other than, none other than Ariana Huffington. 
And then my earlier book was called The Distraction Addiction. And that was about of technology and attention and how we can learn to use devices in ways that help us be more focused and mindful rather than, you know, continuously, partially, um, constantly distracted. And then if you want to learn more about this, um, I am AskPang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G, on pretty much everything. Um, I'm the only AskPang in the world. So uh, Twitter, Instagram, which right now is mainly pictures of my dogs. And then uh, my website is strategy.rest. So rest, rest, fortunately, right before the last book came out, became a top level domain. So um, strategy, strategy.rest is where I continue to write about shorter working hours, issues involving rest, and how to put all this into practice. Great job. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again to Alex. If you have a friend who uh, you think could uh, benefit from getting a little bit more rest in his or her life or their life, forward this episode to them. Uh, I think that would uh, I think that would be a, a service to your friend and also uh, would be a great way to help us grow the podcast. Before I go, as always, big thanks to the team, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omohundro, Leighton Schneider. Uh, we'll be back with a new episode uh, next week, Wednesday, with um, Jess Morey who's a teacher on the meditation app, uh, the 10% Happier Meditation app. But she also runs this extraordinary program that is designed – she's been on the show before if you want to go back and listen to her in, in preparation for this next episode. But she, she also runs an extraordinary organization that teaches teenagers how to meditate. She does these incredible retreats with teenagers. And so we are going to talk to a group of teenagers who've, who had recently completed a meditation retreat. And you are – this is not quite wisdom from the mouth of babes. Because they're not babes, but it's a lot of wisdom, and it's from younger people than you might expect. And they're also talking about sort of what it's like to stay sane as a young person in this uh, tech-drenched era. So very excited for that one. We'll see you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. 
Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.